Um, and in fact, back in March, April of 2020, I, I was advocating for masks strongly because I'd read the evidence. And, and as a scientist, I could read that evidence, evaluate it scientifically. There's evidence for this. Let's do that, basically. And then my, 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 my mission began to explain that evidence to people. So, so I guess even though I wouldn't be a mask technology expert, I could certainly look at the evidence and realize, good Lord, these are very useful things to have, you see. Hello and welcome to COVID Matters, a podcast by COVIDAID. I'm your host, Cheryl, and I'm a content editor and writer at COVIDAID. On today's episode, I spoke to Professor Luke O'Neill, who's a world-renowned immunologist and professor of biochemistry at Trinity College, Dublin. The coronavirus pandemic changed Professor Luke's life as he became a public figure featuring on Irish radio shows and TV programmes, advising the nation on how they can protect themselves and others from the virus. He recorded his year of the coronavirus outbreak in a series of diary entries, which have now been published in the form of a book called Keep Calm and Trust the Science, an extraordinary year in the life of an immunologist. This book is the basis of today's discussion and through that we cover things like how the pandemic impacted his life and his day-to-day job, his take on anti-vaxxers and how we can encourage people to trust the science from here on, and also his predictions on what role Covid will play in the year ahead. So Keep Calm and Trust the Science, which I have with me right here. Great book. This is your diary, a series of diary entries covering 2020, early 2021, which of course, as we know, was the extraordinary year of the pandemic outbreak. So I know you mentioned this in the introduction to your book, but I just wondered if you could, for our listeners, contextualise what was going on in your life at the start of that year and why were you recording a diary at this time? Sure. sure. Well, well, I mean, I'm an immunologist, first of all. So, of course, once COVID began, I was watching it very closely for obvious reasons, you know. And then I've also done some radio stuff in Ireland. So my radio interviews began to talk about COVID as well, you see. So suddenly my world, like all of us, became COVID relevant is the way to put it, you know. And I kind of realized I'll make a note of this because I want to keep note of all the science, first of all, but also all the various things happening with COVID. I knew it'd be an interesting thing to do. And then a publisher approached me and said, you fancy making it into a book? So it's funny, isn't it? And luckily enough, I had quite detailed notes. And then I was on the radio twice a week, then all through COVID giving like regular updates on the progress that was happening. So, of course, I could build that into the book as well. But the book is actually the scientific progress, as well as my own life, what was happening to me as the months went by, really, you know. And I think early on in the pandemic, like you say, it was kind of the initial outbreak was around February, March time. And during that time, you were traveling a lot. You were attending events and different talks all across the world. What was that like for you to be traveling at that time where the rumors were spreading and even while abroad, you had it confirmed to you by a coronavirus expert that this was going to be quite a big deal? Well, that's right. I was, I was going to conferences on viruses, say, you know, there was a big one I was at in Rotterdam in January and we're all wondering, what does this mean? At that stage, of course, it hadn't been declared an emergency. Uh, the early phase, there was no evidence of uh, 
of a human to human transmission even you know so over time then over those first two or three months every conference I went to it got more and more vivid and there was more and more information and experts I, I, met, I met a coronavirus expert at a conference and he said to me this won't end until 70% of the world has been infected or vaccinated and I went hang on a minute tell me that again you know so in other words, we, we were learning as we went along too, as more and more data began to emerge, you see. And then finally, we get to the end of February, early March, and then everybody knew then this is very, very serious. And, and then the, the immediate effect was all the conferences stopped then. And, and the biggest change to my life was no longer traveling for science because pre-COVID, I was away probably a third of the time, you know, going to conferences, meeting collaborators. People often forget scientists are very, uh, very mobile people. There's, all, there's always discussions and meetings happening, you know, that all stopped. And then we switched to the world of Zoom. Last year, I gave 54 scientific presentations on Zoom, for instance. And in fact, you'd wonder what the future of conferences will be, because like, do we really need to be together? Now, I think we will have to have a bit of face-to-face stuff, because things happen there that doesn't happen on Zoom. But the future, like the workplace, is hybrid, isn't it? Every conference will also be online and watch, and, and you can go in person if, you, if you're able to. So, so our lives change just as much as anybody else's, really, you know? There's economic arguments as well as to why they should or shouldn't happen, you know, depending on budgets and things like that. I wanted to talk a little bit about the idea of you having a kind of insider knowledge when it comes to this virus. You're an immunologist, you deal with inflammatory diseases, previous work with Crohn's disease, for example. So what's it like, particularly thinking about the evidence on wearing masks to have that information and early on in the pandemic to see that people hadn't yet adopted those preventative behaviours. What's that like from your perspective? Yeah, there's two levels there really. My own research is about, as you said, the inflammatory process in many different diseases. And I'd worked on, you know, things like, for example, chikungunya virus and inflammation. So I had worked on infectious diseases causing inflammation. But also, my main interest, though, would be autoimmune diseases where there's inflammation. So, so when COVID began, then I realized, oh, I can now do research on this. I can apply my knowledge of the inflammatory process to COVID. And we started three projects on COVID, as many labs did around the world, of course. You know? And in fact, we may have made a finding of a new way to stop the coagulation that happens in COVID. As you might not know, it's a coagulopathy. You get these microvascular clots, you know. We may have a way to stop that. I mean, we've done experiments in, um, in, in models of COVID in animals where our drug seems to stop coagulation. So that was going on the whole time, right? But then equally, then I was watching all the evidence for masks or for hand washing or for ventilation. And then in the media, of course, I was being asked to comment on that, you know. And, and of course, as you may remember, we were slow to adopt masks, in Ireland and many places, you know, finally, we all adopted them. Um, in fact, back in March, April of 2020, I, I was advocating for masks strongly because I'd read the evidence. And, and as a scientist, I could read that evidence, evaluate it scientifically. There's evidence for this. Let, let's do that, basically. And then my, 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 my mission began to explain that evidence to people. So, so I guess even though I wouldn't be a mask technology expert, I could certainly look at the evidence and realize, good Lord, these are very useful things to have, you see. And then my job then became advocacy, I guess, in, 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 in information to explain this to people, really. And then, of course, the big triumph, Cheryl, was the vaccines. And I know a lot about vaccines, obviously, and I've worked on vaccines myself over the years. The side of that I work on is what, what I call adjuvants. They're the things you add into vaccines to get the immune system going. So I knew a lot about this area. And again, I watched these vaccines emerge. And, and I guess one word I would use is excitement as a scientist, because there was such progress here. It was a re- remarkable progress happened delivering these spectacular vaccines. And of course, I knew the Oxford group very well, Adrian Hill, 
had a collaboration with Adrian uh, 10 years ago on malaria, for instance, and they were telling me what was going on. I get emails off them and stuff. So I did have a bit of insider scoops, shall we say, as to what the progress was. But for me as a scientist, to watch all this science emerge, and it was so compelling scientifically, that was a really thrilling thing to show science doing its job is the way to put it. Definitely. And like you say, it's it's kind of the urgency placed that excitement on yourself to get going and, you know, develop these vaccines and help the global crisis that, that was the pandemic. I, I can't imagine how exciting that was for you and your lab to begin working, even just to be back in the lab because you spent a time at home as well. Right. Yeah, well, we were lucky. I mean, we, we everywhere shut down, as we all remember, but then we were, we were designated essential workers because our research was on COVID. So our lab could reopen. I think probably it was towards the end of April, early May time. The lab reopens, four people allowed in initially. It was difficult because we had to observe various uh, distancing rules and so on. Finally, by June, my entire team is back. Now, you can imagine how excited they were because they're actually in a lab working on COVID. And, and that sense of powerlessness that many people felt, uh, we wouldn't have quite that because we're actually doing stuff that's relevant to COVID. And that was a thrill to do as well, you see. And then we get data and things begin to emerge. And we be, and that, I mean, the thrill of your scientists is to make discoveries. And lo and behold, some of our projects begin to begin to work out, which is great, you see. And you're right. I mean, never in history, well, probably not so very, certainly in my lifetime anyway, was your research so relevant to people, you know? And the appetite for information was vast. And as you may have seen in the book, I was tormented by the media a lot. You know, they were always on to me. And I was quite happy to do it because why wouldn't we share information? I mean, I know this stuff as an immunologist. Of course, I would want to tell people, given the need out there for this information. So it became a kind of a privilege in the end to be sharing it with everybody, really, you know? Yeah, it's it's almost as if our celebrities of this particular era are the scientists, which is great because, like you say, it's all science, it's all research, it's all knowledge. So long may it continue. Well, I'll um, be happy to step back slightly, Shaq, because it was very time-consuming, remember, as well, you know? I mean, I'm as, I'm as relieved as anybody for me not to be in the media as much, you see, because because that means the thing that the, the emergency's over, really. That's a good thing to, to celebrate, in a way, you know? I actually, I do want to touch on that. Um, one of my questions was kind of around mental health. And, you know, you had a lot of exposure in the media with the virus outbreak to share information and what people can do to protect themselves. But within the book, you talk about days where you just, you felt this fog on waking up and you kind of had to shake yourself to get up, to get out of bed. Some days were like the rest of the public. You were just sick of hearing about COVID. <laughs> so how do you deal with that? Well, I wanted to humanise the book and make it interesting. You know, we all have days and we go, oh, God, this is getting to me now, you know. And or you wake up on a Monday morning and you go, I'd rather not go in today. Thanks very much. So I was just trying to convey that in a sense, you know. And that's resonated with people, actually. It shows that us scientists are human as well. And that we can have our good days and bad days, you know. And, and of course, inevitably then, like we all have to do, don't we? You get on with it, don't you, as best you can, really. And then, and then, and the way you deal with that is you just get back up on the horse, you know, get, get back in, get back into the lab again, and carry on. You see, so. But you're right, though. I mean, there were times I was sick to death of COVID because it was just constant, wasn't it? You know, every time you put the news on, and every time you open the page, you know, and 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 there were times during this pandemic when it looked bad. I mean, well, I suppose what was happening as well was I knew it could get very bad from my my insider knowledge, if you like, and I knew that the the vaccines might take longer or the more malignant variant that were coming all the time might be much worse. And that was always in the back of my mind as well. And I, w- I wouldn't say that in public because it was unknown, you know? And the kind of the, the approach I kind of took was, 
I will speak about stuff which I can stand over scientifically, you see. And secondly, whenever there's a chance to say things are bad, always say this is the way out of that. In other words, we're not helpless. And that was a very important thing I tried to do. And, and, and then that, again, that resonated with people because I, th- I think it's an example of um, how do you do with bad news? You know, you can say, oh, it's looking terrible. But if you follow the second sentence, of, well, we're going to do this as a way out, then people have some kind of hope and, and encouragement, really, you know? Yeah, it's it's great as well to spread that hope when you're turning on at five o'clock and it always seems to be the negative news. And that's how the fatigue, kind of national fatigue spread, because no one knew what to do until the vaccines, thankfully, until they were launched. So in relation to your title of this book, which is Keep Calm and Trust the Science, what keeps you calm in a global crisis? There's various answers to that, to be honest. I remember re- reading recently uh, the painter, painter L.S. Lowry. You ever hear of him? He was famous for the matchstock man stuff. And, uh, and someone asked him once, what, what do you do when you're not painting? He says, I'm thinking about painting. <laughs> so, that was good. so I am a professional scientist and I, and I love my job. So, so strangely, I can relax by reading science because, because it might give me an idea or I'll see a new angle on something, you know, and then I might think of something brand new. And that, that's quite relaxing. With an outside science, like all of us, I've got various hobbies, I guess. You know, I mean, my big hobby is music, actually. So I'd often uh, get the guitar out, you know, and bash away at it for a while, things like that, you see. Uh, and then also, obviously, um, you know, reading, you know, and all those kinds of things, standard things like that. But music was always my number one relaxer. So I'd like to move on slightly to talk about advice, misinformation, and, of course, the so-called anti-vaxxers. So you yourself in the public eye, you had quite a few run-ins with anti-vaxxers. And unfortunately, there are people who still don't trust the science. Why do you think that is? It's a, Yeah, I mean, it's a big challenge. I mean, I mean, the good news is, of course, how many have trusted the science. Certainly in Ireland, we got to 96% of our population fully vaccinated and boosted. Isn't that incredible? And, and the UK is similar. Around Europe, there's many examples of that. So, so thankfully, the vast majority have trusted the science and have taken the vaccine. And that was, I was a big advocate for that, obviously, given my expertise, you see. Now, the ones who won't do it, it's a complex mix of reasons. Some don't trust governments, you know, some are feel, feel disenfranchised. Some really are frightened it's going to harm them, you know, because they might have had a bad experience in the past. For some, it is political and they're just against these sorts of things anyway, you know. Some think it's big farm, are trying to manipulate us. All those things are going on as well, you see. Uh, so, but all you can do, my, you can never force it on people. I would be very much against any mandating of vaccines because that can backfire, you know, big negative effects. All you can do is give the other side, you know. And I say, in my opinion, here's the evidence. And remember, all the evidence is there. Nothing's hidden. Anybody can check out the safety and efficacy and effectiveness of these vaccines, you see. And, and when, it does, when push comes to shove, I say, look, I say, every single health agency in the world says, please take these vaccines. And it's not for you, it's for the greater good action. Because the way to get rid of this virus is for how to have everybody take the vaccine. Of course, you'll benefit yourself as well. But don't think about yourself, think about the community. But that, that's all you can say. And some people go, oh, yes, I, I'll go with that. And some people don't. And there, there isn't much more you can do. Brings it straight back to the start where you spoke to the coronavirus expert who said the only way to get rid of it is to get a high percentage of people vaccinated. But you do mention it there, it is kind of political and something that causes a lot of confusion for many people, we get a lot of feedback like this, is why are certain countries doing it a different way? Why do certain countries approve the vaccines quicker than others? Why, for example, I'm in Scotland right now, we are still wearing masks, 
but across the border in England, it's no masks and you can walk around in public spaces without them. Why is that? Yeah, well, that's a good question. I mean, I think the trouble is governments have to decide what to do, you see. And governments differ in all kinds of ways, you know. And you need to be a political scientist, I suppose, to understand it. I mean, you know, in America, for instance, they're more into personal freedom. So therefore, they're inclined to approach things differently, you see. Whereas in Europe, we're inclined to be more about society, maybe. That's one possibility now, because people might, might disagree with that. But it's complicated, you know. I think in Ireland, as an example, they kept the pub shut here for a very long time, right? Now, there was uproar and the publicans were giving out and the bar owners. I reckon the Irish government knew the Irish people opened the pub to all go mad, you know, and it'll spread like wildfire. So maybe there was a cultural dimension there as well as to why that would have happened here and not, not in other countries, you know. Uh, but you're right, Scotland and I think Scotland and Ireland and Wales were quite similar in our approach. England's a bit different. And that has to be political, really, you know, ultimately, you see. And then in terms of whether you, like some countries are mandating vaccination, you see, and they've obviously got more control over their people and they're able to enforce that more. Other countries are more into personal freedoms and individualism, you see. So it's a complicated one, right? So in your opinion, there's no right or wrong. It's it's just a case of different countries are on different timelines and have different yeah. needs. The timelines are important. There are medical considerations and public health advice is important here. So in Canada, for example, or I was in Canada two weeks ago, actually, they have a much higher hospitalization rate. So now they're more careful. The pubs are still closed in Canada for that. That's one reason. Second, the vaccination rate is slightly lower. So again, the government might implement measures to control the virus in that environment, you see. So there's several variables at play here, really, you know. And then, of course, China responded quite aggressively to the pandemic. There was real hard lockdown there because, again, the Chinese administration could, could, could implement that in a way. Other countries, it might be less able to implement, you know. The, the only way out is medical, really, you know, like public health measures. Will you wear a mask or won't you? Will you be the, the social distancing? All that stuff is public health. It's very hard to know if that works or not, uh, if people will go along with it. I knew if we get an antiviral drug and if we get a vaccine, that's the real thing to have here because that, that, that's proven to work scientifically. And the evidence on masks was a bit indirect for a while. It was a bit circumstantial. It was still there. Uh, but it was hard to do a double-blind placebo-controlled trial with masks to get the definitive proof for that, you know? So that, that made it more difficult then to convince people. So again, that kind of debate was interesting to me. What, what was also very interesting to me was how we judge um, scientific evidence. That, that changed a bit as well, you know, and what constitutes strong evidence versus weak evidence. Now, my day job is to evaluate evidence the whole time as a scientist, you know? And again, that began to come into the public debate, you know, and the public discussions around those things. And again. Sometimes that can't, that's hard to pin down too. Yeah, I would say even my own experience, I've gone from reading journalistic articles and different magazines and publications, and now the things I'm reading are all preprint research, science, which yeah. as someone who did terribly in science, but now to understand it, it just shows how accessible it is as a subject. And like you say, with the preprints, we all have access to the same information. It's just about yeah. what we do with that information once it's out there. That's right. And what's very important is reputable bodies, you might call them, giving their opinion, right? So in other words, in the UK, it could be the, uh, the Lancet or it could be the NHS or it could be whoever, you know, you've got to rely on them and trust them because they've dug into this. You wouldn't have had the time to learn every aspect of lateral flow antigen testing, for instance, you know. But yet, it was very good that it was explained to people very clearly as well, you see. So, so trust is a key sort of commodity during this, I think. And people have trusted the experts largely, which is great, you know. 
So moving again slightly back towards those who aren't completely on par with this information as it comes on, um, the book deals with trolling and the negative comments you've received through the media as a result of being a public figure. As a COVID-19 charity, we've experienced similar where recently we had to stop campaigning on Facebook because of the amount of abusive comments we were getting. How, How do you deal with that yourself? Well, I got used to it and I block it. <laughs> That's the answer, really, you know. Um, it was a bit of a surprise initially, the level of hate. I wasn't quite expecting that. You know, politicians get this. I think I, I discover what it, what it feels like to be a politician and a reasonably not to become a politician. You know? and, and you get used to it and then you just accept it for what it is. Initially, you're worried that it might get even more dangerous. And I was assaulted, actually, walking down the street one day by an anti-vaxxer. And that unnerved me. I was doorstepped coming out of a radio studio with a guy with a camera on my very aggressive, you know. So they were slightly unnerving. But as time went on, I got used to it. I blocked it for definite. Uh, on Twitter especially, only allow people to respond to you who you follow. That's a really good trick, you know? You can't have dialogue on social media. It's hopeless, you know? So I think, I think we may learn how to handle social media better through this. Uh, not just me, but all of us. Because everybody, everybody is subjected to hate, aren't they? <laughs> One level, you know? And I realized you couldn't have a dialogue with them, so forget it. You know? And I wasn't talking to those people, remember. I was talking to reasonable people. That they were my audience. So, so in the end, I got used to it and it didn't bother me in the least. But that's the main thing. Um, I did have an anti-vax protest outside my house as well, though. 20 of them turned up the placards, you know, found my address. Uh, that was a bit unnerving as well, yeah. If anything, it gave me, it, it kind of galvanized me to do more and keep doing it. And many scientists had got this, by the way. And I said, we all stand together now. Let, let's stand as a group against this hate. All I can advise COVID-8 is, Block it, ignore it, and just carry on regardless. That's the, that's the key piece of advice here, really. Yeah. So what's life like for you now? Has it all kind of settled down a little bit? Do you have your privacy back? I do, thank God. Yeah, yeah. Well, now it's gone off the media now, isn't it? Which, which is really good. I, I, I always said, when, when I disappear from the media, I'll be as happy as everybody else will, because they're sick of seeing me. Because it's a good sign, because that means the emergency's passed, you know? So uh, all it meant for me, the pandemic really was, doing an extra job during that time with the information and writing the book. I kept doing my other job as well. So it added more time, I suppose, for me to be working, if you like. But now I can, I can focus more now on my own research more and more, which is great. So do you foresee that kind of continuing? You know, we're, we're now in February 2022. What are your plans for the year ahead? How is COVID going to play into that? Well, well no, I mean, my lab is very just a the door here behind me i've got 15 people in my team you see so i work with them the whole time i sit with them every day uh, i'll be working with them more and more I, I was anyway last year so and now i can do i can spend more time on that really or at least have less uh, less time to be annoyed by the media shall we say you know um that's good uh, the second the big change for me is back on the road again so travel will start again and i'm, I'm scheduled to go to two big conferences now in april you know i can't wait because a lot happens at conferences where you you go to a talk and you get chatting to someone after in the coffee break and all those bits you can't really get on Zoom. And I'm, I'm looking forward to getting back to that because that, that makes it more fun as well, by the way. So, so I'm looking forward to, to, to restoring some of my travel again, like what like, like was there before COVID began. And how is how are things going in terms of COVID? We spoke a little bit about long COVID. Do you foresee yeah. that being a, a big problem for us this year? I do, but it's not over yet, obviously. We've got to keep reminding people that. Um, we're still in the thick of it, and some countries are doing really badly. So it's not as if everything's great either. 
things are looking good, of course, in Europe and other parts of the world as well, where it is becoming this more endemic type disease. Uh, we've learned so much in two years about this virus and about the immune system. We can anticipate things better. But there's huge grounds to say, look, the emergency has passed for us. There will be surges, of course, there will. There'll be spikes in, in cases. We know what to do. The bottom line is this is a preventable disease with vaccines and it's treatable with antivirals. That, that, that's the current situation. We, we also know a lot about, um, say, for example, if you're an immunologist, the T cell response holds up against variants. So, of course, our next concern is would a new variant arrive? And that, that is a real concern. Uh, but given what we know and given the tools we have, we can be less fearful of a new variant. Now, we've got to be careful. It could be vicious, you know. But again, all, all that we've learned can now be deployed if a new variant should arise, which is great. So if, if there was an order of things to, to, to watch, one is a new variant. Secondly, as we were discussing, Carol, the long COVID question, that's a really important one because we still don't know how common it is. There's multiple symptoms here. It's extremely debilitating for some people. You know, the good news there is the conference I was at in Canada uh, the week before last was all about long COVID. So we're learning a huge amount about what's gone wrong in the immune system. Can we get biomarkers to diagnose it? And of course, therapies to treat it. So, so again, that's a very active area for research. And I would be predicting we'd learn an awful lot. And we're learning as much, so much because there's so many people with me. It's easier to study if you're a scientist, if you can study people, you know? And it's so important to, to, to get a, a, a solution to long COVID. Not as so much a solution, but certainly a therapy. Because it, it is so debilitating for some people, you know? And that, that, that's a key area. And then um, the, third, the third thing, as we discussed, is, is all the mental health issues. We're, we're, in, we're in a post-traumatic phase now. And it's very hard to predict how that will play out. And some people are extremely anxious still. Can we encourage people to, to live their lives fully? All that is, is a concern as well. I think the last thing I'd say on, on, on the next phase of it really is, and again, it's, it's, it's the good part of this. We can deploy what we've learned from COVID in other diseases now. So there's huge hope that the vaccine technology that was invented, remember, by, by BioNTech and by Moderna can be deployed against other diseases. And it's malaria, it's, it's HIV, cancer. There's always a hope of um, vaccinating against tumours. And that, that's now gone up. And in fact, Bill Gates last week said this is the golden age for vaccines now because they've proven themselves with COVID, you see. So, so again, we're going to see, see spin-outs from COVID into other diseases where we'll see progress there as well. And that, that'll be one of the silver lining aspects of this pandemic really. One of the things you mentioned in the book is that you hope this pandemic might encourage other children to get into science and immunology. What other positives do you hope to see? Yeah, well, again, not just kids in a way, because all of society hopefully has learned how valuable science is. Now, many knew already, and we're always banging on about it anyway, but science is great, aren't we? But, but the COVID pandemic has really revealed what scientists do and doctors and, and the healthcare service. And, and hopefully it will be remembered. And I'm hoping that people will value it more. We must maintain research. There's always a threat to the budget, like most things, you know. So I'm hoping that countries will, will appreciate what science can really do. Uh, the educational bit, as you mentioned, it's, it's great that there's been so much science for young people because they might decide to be scientists, you see. Wouldn't that be wonderful? Get our brightest and best into this business because science can deliver so much for society in so many ways, you know? So again, that, and that's another one. And then the one I just mentioned, the direct benefits from COVID research could translate into who knows a treatment for cancer. Like what, what if one of the benefits from COVID uh, became vaccines for lung cancer or ovarian cancer or breast cancer. Wouldn't that be tremendous, you see? So, so again, I'm hopeful that that, that that knowledge can be deployed in that way as well.
Thanks so much to Professor Luke for sharing his time with us today. I found it really interesting to hear his perspective on the turbulent few years we've had following the coronavirus outbreak. It's also reassuring to hear the positive outcomes we can expect from the pandemic. Science has come so far in such a short period of time, both in the way we publish and have access to research, but also in the speed at which vaccines can be developed. As Professor Luke says, who knows what other diseases this could help us treat in future. You can buy any of Luke's best-selling books online through your favourite bookstores and in selected stores across the UK. I encourage everyone to read Keep Calm and Trust the Science. It really brings back all the tensions and anxieties we experienced at the height of the pandemic, but sprinkled with some of Luke's good humour too. Please take a look at the show notes for links to our website and social media page. We are at COVID Aid Charity. And do like and subscribe to COVID Matters if you'd like to hear more conversations with experts. And let us know what you thought of this episode. Thanks for listening and until next time, please take care.